Genesis means beginning. And that's exactly what the book of Genesis is. It's the book of beginnings. It tells us the story of the beginning of the universe, the beginning of mankind, the beginning of marriage and family. And tragically, it also tells us the story of the beginning of sin and death and the curse. Chapter 1 of Genesis gives us the big picture of creation. The writer takes us day by day through God's creative work. How God spoke into an empty void and created the sun, the moon, the stars, and this beautiful planet that we call Earth. God spoke the universe into existence and then on the sixth day, He created man to bear his image and to have dominion over his creation. And then in chapter 2, the writer focuses on how God created man and how man was given a job to do. He was to work the garden and to keep watch over it. And we see how God created woman to be a helpmate for the man. The man was to cleave to his wife. It literally means for two things to be joined together that used to be two and now they're one. The man was to live together with his wife and the two of them were to be united physically and spiritually. And so chapter 2 closes with the man Adam and the woman, Eve, together in the garden, enjoying God and enjoying everything God created in purity and in fullness of joy. But then we come to chapter 3. And this is the turning point in human history. When God finished his work of creation, he looked and said, it is good, very good. But because of man's sin, his fellowship with God was broken. And everything that was good and beautiful in God's creation was tainted. I like how Matthew Henry says it. We here have an account of the sin and misery of our first parents, the wrath and curse of God against them, the peace of the creation disturbed, and its beauty stained and sullied, all bad, very bad. Years ago, I preached a sermon called The Devil's Playbook, and I used Genesis chapter 3 as my text. We looked together at how the devil tempted Eve, how he twisted God's words and made Eve doubt the things God had said. We looked at how he tried to convince Eve that God wasn't being fair, that he was keeping things from them and he wasn't really looking out for their good. And those are exactly the same temptations that the devil is using today. 
The truth is, the devil's not very original. He dresses these things up differently. Uh, he makes them seem new and exciting. But he's working from the same old playbook. And if you want to guard yourself against temptation, the best place to start is right here in Genesis chapter 3. But today I want us to look at something that's easy to miss. Most of us know the story. Uh, maybe it's a little too familiar. And we end up racing through it. But Matthew Henry's right. The story of the fall is bad. Very bad. But it didn't catch God by surprise. And it didn't change the way God loved the man and the woman he created. And as we read this chapter and we look beyond sin and death and the curse, what we see is that God had a plan. A plan to restore mankind and to break the curse. Right in the midst of all this tragedy, we see God stepping up and saying, I won't leave you to wallow in your sin. I'll make a way. I'll make a way for men and women, boys and girls, to be saved from the terrible consequences of sin. God gives us the gospel in the garden. Here's what I'd like to do. I want to read the entire chapter so you have the context for what I'll be sharing with you. And then I want to pull two themes from the text. First, I want us to see man's answer for sin. How man tries to deal with sin in his own power. And then I want us to see God's answer for sin, the gospel. So I want to encourage you to uh, read along with me from Genesis chapter 3. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You shall not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And when they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid, because I was naked, and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? 
the man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is it that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, and he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife, and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat your bread, till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken. For you are dust, and to dust you shall return. The man called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and his wife garments of skins, and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out of the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man and, he, uh, and at the east of Eden, the garden in Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. So the story here is the fall of man. Man's sin and the consequences of his sin. But the story behind the story is the gospel. And I want us to begin by looking at man's answer for sin. And the first thing I see is self-help. Self-help. Look with me at verse 7. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. I went on to YouTube a few weeks ago. And I began searching for do-it-yourself videos. And I think you would be surprised by how many different things you can find on YouTube. There were videos for do-it-yourself crafting, landscaping, home decorating, electrical wiring, carpentry, and my favorite, food. Make your own cheese. Make your own cotton candy, anything you want. And really, as Americans, we like the idea of self-help. It's part of what's drilled into our heads by the culture. Be a self-made man, 
right? Be a self-made woman. Pull yourself up by your bootstraps. It's your life. Chart a course for your life without any help from anybody. You, you may have grown up hearing the poem Invictus by William Ernest Henley. Uh, the last two lines of the poem are the ones that are really the most famous. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. And that kind of self-help thinking can creep its way into our theology. Look at Adam and Eve. They broke God's law by eating from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Their eyes were opened, and immediately they were ashamed of their nakedness. And I, I want to stop for a minute and, and drill down. What does it really mean when the writer says that they were ashamed of their nakedness? Was it just that they weren't wearing any clothes? No, there's a whole lot more to it than that. I want to read again from Matthew Henry. I think his commentary helps us understand just how naked they were. They were stripped, deprived of all the honors and joys of their paradise state, and exposed to all the miseries that might justly be expected from an angry God. They were disarmed. Their defense had departed from them. They were shamed, forever shamed before God and angels. So here are Adam and Eve in the garden, stripped of their honor, stripped of their innocence, open to judgment from God. And what do they do? They try to fix it themselves. They take fig leaves and stitch them together to make coverings for themselves. Common, ordinary leaves from a common, ordinary tree. And that's their answer. The real issue was sin. They broke faith. They broke God's law. But instead of dealing with the real issue, they put a band-aid on their shame. That's why self-help is a dead end. You may be wondering, okay, what does this have to do with you and me and the rest of us living in 2021? Well, I'll put it this way. Self-help is still alive and well. We want to fix things ourselves. We're always looking for ways to massage our guilt and our shame without ever having to deal with the sin. And the way most of us try to do it is through good works. We try to do things that we think will be pleasing to God. We go to church. We put money in the offering. We pray. We sing. We may even take part in the ministries of the church, but we never deal with the sin. We do and do and do, but it's all fig leaves. All we're doing is covering up our sin, but the sin's still there, and it's still convicting us. 
we're still guilty before God and deserving of punishment. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. This is a good one to memorize. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not the result of works, so that no one may boast. I want you to be perfectly honest right now before God. Is this you? Are you trying to work your way into heaven? Your works can't save you. It's not about you and the things you do. It's about Jesus. It's about the Savior of the world hanging on a cross and dying for your sins and mine. He died and He rose again for you. Don't trust your good works. That's self-help and it's a dead end. Put your trust in Jesus. Put your trust in Jesus and He'll give you the things you're looking for. Forgiveness, peace, joy, and the promise of eternal life. So man's answer for sin is self-help. But it's also hiding from God. Hiding from God. Look at verse 8. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees in the garden. After they ate from the tree, they could hear God approaching in the garden. And instead of running to greet their creator, they run and hide. What drove them into hiding? Shame, fear, guilt, all because of sin. What happened to their relationship? What had been a source of joy and happiness in their lives became a terror. They were terrified of coming face to face with God and they hid. That's what sin does. Think of it like this. Light and dark can't coexist. And that's how it is with God's holiness. Sin can't coexist with the holiness of God. There's a reason the angels around the throne of God sing, Holy, holy, holy. Three is the biblical number of perfection. And God is perfect in His holiness. And so in the presence of holiness, sinners run for cover. And that's where we'll stay until God calls us out. I've heard people say, I'm, I'm a seeker. I'm, I'm looking for God. No, you're not. <laughs> Do you know what the Bible says? You're not looking for God. You're not on a spiritual quest. You're hiding. You're in the bushes with Adam. 
Isaiah 59, verse 2. Your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God. And your sins have hidden His face from you so that He does not hear. Sin creates a wall of separation. And it's even worse than that. As sinners, we're rebels. We've become enemies of God and the things of God and we're subject to God's wrath. Look, I can't put it any better than R.C. Sproul. He's a smart guy. Listen to what he says. Even the slightest sin does violence to the Creator's holiness, His glory, and His righteousness. Every sin, no matter how seemingly insignificant, is an act of rebellion against the sovereign God who reigns and rules over us. An act of treason against the cosmic king. That's us. As sinners, we're in open rebellion against the living God and the king of the universe, and that's why we're hiding. And the truth is, you could be sitting right here in the sanctuary, you could be watching the live stream and still be hiding from God. It's not about a place. It's about a posture of the heart. And as long as you remain in sin, the things of God will sound like foolishness to you. The truth and the power of God's Word will be nothing more than gibberish in your ears. Listen to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18. For the word of the cross is folly, folly to those who are perishing. But to those of us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Sin sends us into hiding, full of shame, full of fear, separated from God, angry at God, blind to the beauty of God and the goodness of God. And I hope you can see that as sinners, you and I are powerless to fix things. Remember, self-help, it's a lie. It's a dead end. It doesn't work. And we're hiding from God. It's like fear and shame and guilt have frozen our feet to the ground. We can't fix things. Only God can. So we're still looking at man's answer for sin. We've looked at self-help. We've looked at how sin forces us into hiding. And next I want us to see the blame game. The blame game. God calls out to Adam. And Adam doesn't say anything about having eaten from the tree. He tells God that he was naked and he was afraid. And that's why he hid. And God confronts Adam. Look at verse 11. This is God speaking. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? Now, as a lawyer, I would say that's a simple yes or no question. Right? Did you break my law by eating from the tree. But look at how Adam answers. Look at verse 12. The man said, 
the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree and I ate. And then God turns to Eve and he asks, what have you done? And look at how Eve answers in verse 14. The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. That's the blame game. Adam blames Eve, Eve blames the serpent, and Adam comes about this close to blaming God for the whole thing. Man's answer for sin is to be the artful dodger. Don't acknowledge your sin. Minimize it, explain it away, blame it away, but whatever you do, don't confess. Turn with me to 1 John Chapter 1, verse 9. I want you to see what the Bible has to say about confessing our sins. If we confess our sins, He, that's God, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. I want to teach you a Greek word. Homo logeo. Can you say it with me? Homo logeo. That's the Greek word for confess or confessing. And it literally means to say the same thing. Homo means same. Logeo means to speak or to say. So confessing means saying the same thing as God. It means agreeing with God that sin is sin. We don't sugarcoat it. We don't try to make excuses or blame somebody else for it. We take responsibility for it. We own it. I want to compare Adam and Eve with King David. You may remember the story of David and Bathsheba. As the king, David was supposed to be leading his army. But instead, he stayed back at the palace. And he spent his idle time on the roof of the palace. And he saw Bathsheba bathing as he was idling on the roof. And before you know it, he's having an adulterous relationship with her. Nathan, the prophet, confronts David and he confesses his sin. We know that because David wrote Psalm 51 and he made his confession public. And I want to read what he says in verses 3 and 4 of that psalm. Listen to how he says this. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. See, David doesn't blame anybody else. He doesn't try to convince God that what he did wasn't really a sin. He owns it. And his heart is broken over it. That's biblical confession. Think about it. How can God 
forgive your sins if you won't even come face to face with the fact that you're a sinner. The blame game can't save you. And listen, if that's how you're trying to deal with your sin, you'll end up just as lost as you were before you did it. The blame game is a lie. The blame game is a dead end. So we've looked at man's answer for sin. And I hope I've been clear. I've tried to be. None of those things can save you. But now I want us to look at God's answer. And it begins with God's calling. God's calling. God is walking in the garden. Adam and his wife are hiding. And then look at uh, verse 9 with me. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? Now, do you think God couldn't see them hiding in the bushes? Really? When you get home later today, I want you to pull out Psalm 139. The psalmist gets it. He asks God, where can I go from your spirit? Where can I hide from your presence? God is omniscient. That means he knows everything. And he's omnipresent, which means he's literally everywhere. So that means that God is the world champion at hide and seek. And he knows exactly where Adam and Eve are hiding. That's not what he's asking. When God asks a question, he's speaking directly to the heart. And here he's asking the man, Adam, Adam, where are you spiritually? What's brought you to the point that you're hiding from me instead of enjoying me? It's a question that's meant to bring conviction, to force Adam to see his sin and to acknowledge it and to confess it and to ask God's forgiveness. You know, the New, the New Testament teaches us that part of the Holy Spirit's job is to bring conviction. Take a look at uh, the Gospel of John, chapter 16, verse 8. This is part of the upper room discourse. Jesus has joined together with his disciples for the Passover, and he's told them that he's going away, but they won't be left alone. He'll send the Holy Spirit. And, and this is what he says. And when he comes, the Holy Spirit, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. You know, we've already seen that, that sin forces us into hiding. We aren't even looking for God. But the good news of the gospel is that God is looking for us. And when the Holy Spirit speaks to us, He opens our eyes to spiritual truth. And we begin to see things from God's perspective. We see our sin. And we call it what it is. It's sin. And we understand what God says about sin. It brings judgment. And it brings death. 
But God also shows us that there's a Savior. We can't save ourselves, but God lovingly and graciously makes a way. And that's what I want us to see next. Coming to God His way. Coming to God His way. After Adam and Eve ate from the tree and they saw their nakedness, they tried to cover up their sin. Um, they used fig leaves to do it. But then after God confronts them and he pronounces the curse, he gives them a new covering. Look at uh, verse 21. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. And it's really easy to pass over this verse, but it's important. Um, you know, God's not saying that, uh, that skins make a better covering than fig leaves or that skins are more fashionable than fig leaves. It's not about the kind of covering God provided, but where the covering came from. God killed an animal. And he used its skin as a covering. And I think there are two big takeaways from this verse. The first one is that sin brings death. The just punishment for sin in the eyes of a holy God is death. Paul says the same thing in Romans chapter 6, verse 23. Remember, the wages of sin is death. That's our condition. We're guilty and we're deserving of death. But God is also a God of grace. And grace means goodness, favor that we don't deserve. And it's by grace that God makes a way for us to be saved. And that's the second takeaway from this verse. God shows grace by providing a substitute. Listen, Adam and Eve were the ones who sinned, right? Adam and Eve were the ones who broke God's law. Adam and Eve were the ones who should have been punished. It was their sin. But God provided a substitute. Here's what uh, John MacArthur says about that. The first physical deaths should have been the man and the woman. But it was an animal. A shadow of the reality that God would someday kill a substitute to redeem sinners. This idea of a substitute fills the Old Testament. In fact, it's the basis for the whole sacrificial system. If you sin in the Old Testament, you would bring a bull or a ram to the temple. And the priest would actually make you lay your hands on the animal's head. You would identify with the animal. And then it would serve as your substitute. The animal would be killed in your place. And its blood would cover your sins. But that was just a foreshadowing of what was coming. The writer of Hebrews says that the blood of animals could never really take away our sins. It was a shadow. Not the reality. The reality was Jesus. And I want you to see that right here in chapter 3, before God 
drives Adam and Eve out of the garden, he gives us a glimpse of Jesus. Take a look with me. Uh, God's promise. God's promise. You know, if you read chapter 3 without knowing the whole story, you might think the devil won the day. He dangled a temptation in front of the man and the woman, and, and they went for it, hook, line, and sinker. And now they're corrupted by sin. That's exactly what the devil was hoping for. And even creation itself is corrupted by their sin. But right here in verse 15, there's a glimmer of hope. God is right in the middle of pronouncing a curse against the devil when he stops and he makes a promise that a Savior will come. Here's what God says. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Okay, I want us to work together through this verse. I know it's a bit mysterious, but I want to see if we can unpack exactly what God's saying. First of all, what's enmity? It means hostility, adversity. So God says to the devil, I'm putting hostility between you and the woman. And we know that's true, right? There's an ongoing battle raging every day between the devil and mankind. Day by day, moment by moment, that's what life is like living in a fallen world. But then he talks about offspring. Here's what God says. Devil, I'm putting hostility between your offspring and the woman's offspring. All right, who's the devil's offspring? Well, the Bible tells us that's the unbelieving world. The Bible says that unbelievers are a part of the devil's kingdom. They're his children, his offspring. Okay, well now who are the woman's offspring? Ah, this is where it gets interesting. God has someone specific in mind. Here's what he says. He will come. He will come. God looked through the tunnel of time and he saw Jesus. Time would pass. Generations would come and go. And finally, in the fullness of time, the Savior, Jesus, would be born, the offspring of the woman. Okay, what else does he say in verse 15? Listen to this. God's still speaking, and he says, Devil, you'll bruise his heel. You'll bruise his heel. Think of a snake biting you in the ankle. The devil is going to strike the Savior. There's going to be pain. There's going to be suffering. Do you see it? It's the cross. Jesus would suffer on the cross. He would be whipped. He would be beaten. He would be pierced by the nails and the spear. And he would endure unimaginable suffering 
and then he would die. But that's not the end of the story. Look at what else God says. He shall bruise your head. You may strike, devil, but Jesus will have the last say. He will crush your head, and he'll have the final victory. And that's exactly what happened three days later. Jesus suffered. Jesus died. But three days later, Jesus rose from the dead. Jesus walked out of the tomb, and he crushed the devil. He conquered sin. He conquered death. He conquered hell. God made that promise in the garden, and he fulfilled it on the cross. And today, if you belong to Jesus, I want to encourage you to say, thank you, God. Thank you, God, for the promise you made in the garden. And thank you, God, for fulfilling it on the cross. And thank you, God, for loving me when I was unlovable and for sending Jesus to save me. He's worthy of your thanks, and he's worthy of your worship. And if you don't know Jesus personally, if you've never received Jesus as Savior of your life, I want to pull all this together for you. I want you to know what the gospel is. First of all, you have to admit that you're a sinner. You've broken God's law and you're like Adam. You're hiding in the bushes. And you have to confess your sins to God. Own your sins and ask God to forgive them. And then repent. That means turning away from your sin and turning to God. Trusting Jesus as your one and only hope and your one and only Savior. And God will do the rest. He'll forgive your sins. He'll give you a new heart. A heart that genuinely loves God and wants to live for God. And He'll take up residence in your heart. He'll be a faithful friend and a companion. He'll give you wisdom to make right choices in life. He'll guard your heart. He'll give you strength and protection. He'll be your provider. Sounds like a brand new life, doesn't it? That's why Jesus calls it being born again. And if that's your desire today, we'll have men and women in the front of the church who can answer your questions and help you make Jesus a reality in your life. Andrea, I'll have you come and lead our final song, and I'll invite you to stand with me, and I'll close this with prayer. God, we thank you so much for a love that reaches us in our sin and our unworthiness. We thank you for grace that reaches out to us and makes a way when we can't make a way, that fixes what we can't fix. God, I do pray right now 
for anyone in the hearing of my voice who doesn't know Jesus. God, let them see the gospel. I pray that your spirit, God, would speak to their hearts and invite them, Lord, to step out of the bushes, to confess their sins, and to start a brand new life today with Jesus. We love you, Lord, and we are thankful for who you are, for what you've done for us, and for the promise of eternal life with you. We ask all of these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.
Amen. The Lord is my salvation. I hope that's the testimony of your life today. And I hope that you enjoyed being together with God's people. And I invite you to stick around. There's a whole lot more fellowshipping to be done. I want to ask uh, Brother Seth to come now and to lead us in a closing prayer. Seth? Let's pray. God, we thank you for the truth of your word today. We thank you for the truth that we have heard from Pastor Jay this morning. God, I thank you that your word is able to train us in righteousness and equip us for every good work. It makes us complete. Thank you, God. And Lord Jesus, I pray that as we depart this place, you would enable us to look more like you this week, to respond like you, to love like you. Help us to do this, Jesus. And may it be to your honor and to your glory. We love you and we thank you. And I pray these things in your precious and holy name. Amen.